Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Darren Lewis of the Daily Mirror and Sarah Shepard from The Coach's Voice. The temptation is to concentrate on the obvious, the tie between Arsenal and Man United. That has its merits, but this is FA Cup week. It's time to celebrate the democracy and humanity of the game. There's no better place to do so than Accrington Stanley. It's a small, vibrant community club, punching way above its weight. The home tie against Derby County is an exclamation mark in a story that lifts the spirit and rewards faith. Magic of the cup, eh? Well, actually, I'm a cynic, but at the same time, I do like the words that are used in terms of the democracy of the FA Cup because Accrington Stanley epitomised that. Um, Andy Holtz has been a really vocal critic of the distribution of wealth within the football pyramid. Um, he speaks loudly, he speaks eloquently, and he speaks for a number of clubs who, perhaps not as bold as he is and as strident as he is in criticising the people higher up the pyramid for their willingness to talk a good game, but their unwillingness to make sure that the clubs lower down the, the pyramid get a, a, their fair share of uh, the riches that are available to clubs in, in this industry. I think it's wonderful in terms of the community around the club, the various things that they're doing, obviously cheap there if you want to head down there. But also in, in football terms, this is a very winnable game for them as well. You saw the fight that they had with uh, Charlton at the weekend. You know, they know how to have a little bit of a ruck. But at the same time, this is about more than just the, the game itself. This is about what Accrington represent, what Andy represents, what their struggle, obviously their mid-table, I think there's three or four points off the uh, drop somebody they've got uh, a game in hand on the teams around them. It's just the fact that clubs like his are always fighting, always punching, and a guy like him is a real ambassador for the lower leagues, for the clubs that don't get their fair crack of the whip. Yeah. Off the back of that, Sarah, it's... I've found Andy Holt a really quite uh, engaging and almost inspirational type figure. I think he sums up football like this, and I'll give you a quote to go off the back of. He said, there's a conflict. Business is about winning by making greater profit. Football is about communities, dreams, history. It's about the man who sat on his grandfather's shoulders to see the game decades ago. Perfectly put. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, when you look back at their promotion season and what that meant to the community, you really see the truth in, in what he says. Um, and it's a that club is a real reminder of how the relationship between a club and the community can bring real value to both those parties. Yeah. You know, sometimes we forget and the big clubs forget how important the fans are. But clubs at that level, they can't forget that because without the fans, they know that they're nothing. You know, it's very hard for them to survive. And um, we've seen with, for example, Dulwich Hamlet recently when they were kicked out of their ground, 
how the strength of their community has really helped them survive that period. And now they're back in their home stadium and, and that support is so strong. So yeah, I think those clubs are a really good reminder of how that relationship, how important that relationship is. Mm. And I like the tie as well, you know, Mike, because I mean, it's a winnable tie for them. I know um, Derby are a very good cup team, but they've, they've used up a lot of energy this season, a lot of emotional energy as well, beating big clubs. And everyone would perhaps be on that form, have them to steamroller Accrington. But you think to yourself, you know, if they were in a one-off game, really up for it, really showed that spirit, that fight, maybe they could upset the odds and it would be a, a wonderful story of its own. I know we, we these days we see giant killings as a small club like Accrington beating a Premier League club, but why not Frank Lampard's derby, as we all call them? Mm. With Frank Lampard's derby, you know, he's had a fairly chastening week or two. You know, he's learning about football in the raw in terms of his management, managerial apprenticeship. What's your take on how he's done so far? Um, I've been impressed. You know, in terms of results, they've been through a little bit of a sticky patch and come through the other side of that. Frank, you know, whenever you see him interviewed, he's he's pretty honest about how difficult he's finding it and the challenge of it and why he's doing it. So, yeah, I've been, I've been pretty impressed. And it was a difficult situation for him to handle the Bielsa thing. I think he dealt with it pretty well. I think after the Southampton game, the first thing he said to the press was, we do um, analysis too. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, he's kind of finding the humour in it. Obviously, he was quite, you could see, he was quite upset after the Leeds game. But um, I thought he dealt with the aftermath pretty well. And his players seem to be really enjoying playing for him. Mm. I, I see so many parallels between Frank and um, Stephen Gerrard, for instance. Mm. You know, players of similar magnitude who I think might well end up at their parent clubs, as it were. I can see... Frank Lampard ended up back at Chelsea. Didn't Absolutely, you? I can. Um, because uh, the parallel between the two is that they've gone into their respective clubs and they've instantly brought a professionalism and an authority to the role, um, but also a sense of community within the club as well. Um, and they're not autocratic. They understand their players. They talk to players. Um, they're very good at man management, but also they're getting results as well. And I don't think the results that Frank's pulled off in the league have, have been a fluke. Um, they come from hard work. They come from the details, working on penalties, working on set pieces, uh, studying the opposition. Ha <laughs> ha. Mm. Um, but he, he, you know, he does the very basic things very well. And, and he's got a good coach with him in Jody Morris. He, he has, and and the two of them have worked hard to identify talent in the academy and worked with that talent in the academy at Chelsea. Uh, and that's another reason why, if they were to go back there. Not only do you, would you assume they'd do a good job, but they could be the guys that they need to actually make the most of all this young talent coming through that academy that is going off to, or wanting to go off to other countries to fulfil their potential. They could be the ones to realise that potential at Stamford Bridge because they've done great work there. They're doing great work at Derby. The icing on the cake for Derby would be a promotion, but there are few other clubs who are working quite hard to achieve the same aim. Mm. And a lot of people point at, at Frank and, and Stephen Gerrard and say, you know, why should they have walked into such such big jobs? But then a lot of the managers that, that we've spoken to who started lower down and out of the spotlight, they say how appreciative they are for that opportunity to have had that learning period outside of the pressures of mm. being in a big job. Frank Lampard and Stephen Gerrard have gone straight in. Like you said, the spotlight was going to be on them wherever they went, but especially so at those clubs. Um, especially so at Rangers for Stephen Gerrard, you know. Yeah. He's learning on the job with the eyes of 
a lot of people on him, yeah. a lot of scrutiny. In, the, in that context, you know, and then certainly on your site, you'll be aware that you know, the managers have this sort of mythology about being a thousand match manager. Now, John Coleman is a thousand match manager. He's been associated with Accrington for what, 18 years. Mm -hmm. Andy Holt says he will never sack him, whether, you know, ne never, if they even go down. Here's someone who's come up through junior football in Liverpool. He's a different type of animal to the one that we normally associate with professional football, you know, with greatest respect. Yeah, they, I mean, they are different, you know, when they've come through that pathway, you know, they've had to, when you're, when you're at a smaller club, you know, with fewer resources, you have to do a lot more things to be the manager. Your job consists of lots of different things. Sometimes you end up being part chief executive, you know. It's a very different job to what Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard are probably doing, you know, where they're, they're able to focus on the football largely. So, yeah, by the time someone like John Coleman gets to where he is now, he's got such a wealth of experience across everything in a football club, not just dealing with the players on the pitch. I yeah. always think, though, it, it, you often talk about players and managers understanding what it means to fans. That higher up the pyramid, somebody comes in from either outside the community, outside the country, they talk about what it means to the fans, but they don't really know when you've done all those jobs. If you think about journalism, I started in local newspapers and you do lots of other things rather than the thing you're actually wanting to do because your newspaper is so small. You know, so, you know, you could go off and cover news stories. You could be the sports critic. You could be the restaurant reviewer. Whatever. You could do all sorts of things. Well, so that, I would have thought, you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> but, you know, you do, you, do, you do all sorts of things. And I, 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 you can understand why somebody like John is so plugged into the community. And local people, uh, sorry, managers like him, understand the community that they serve because they have been really at the coalface in many uh, in many respects and and they understand and have talked directly to the people with that financial and emotional investment in the team yeah you talk about community and i just want a bit of a tangential point but i think it's an important one to make crystal palace in this cold snap in the freezing temperatures have opened up selhurst park to the homeless you know, giving them basic necessities now i think that's a fantastic gesture and it's something that perhaps could be replicated across the football pyramid does that tell you what the potential the social potential of our football clubs is yeah absolutely um i mean it seems like an just a no-brainer for every club especially those around big cities to be doing something like that um I mean, any, anyone who lives or works in a big city has probably seen the increase in homelessness in the last sort of five years or so. So, yeah, it, it shows, you know, how for the clubs, it's a fairly easy thing for them to do, you know. Yeah. Um, and the positive side of it is endless. Newcastle are doing a similar thing. There's a wonderful piece uh, done by George Colkin uh, in The Times about the the work that the club are doing with the homeless, um, metaphorically opening their doors and... Uh, the players that are getting involved as well. And you, you talk about tangential point. It's, the, it's a little bit why I, a couple of people have mentioned when opposition fans sing songs like Feed the Scousers and all mm. that sort of thing mm. and joke about the unpalatable nature of the social problems that affect us all. I don't like to hear that sort mm. of thing because we're all basically living in cities and communities where there are social issues that are affecting all of us and they're not to be joked about. And I think it's wonderful that football isn't just football's very good at talking a good game we know this so it's wonderful when clubs are getting involved opening their doors showing that they can actually match their words with action mm. on the pitch palace have got tottenham on sunday in the cup are tottenham finally going to crack 
um, I hope not, you know. Um, I think we're, we've all kind of enjoyed watching Pochettino bring that team to the brink of achieving something and it will be, be great to see them go on and do something great. But, you know, we saw yesterday um, the injury to Deli Ali, who was kind of, everyone was pinning their hopes on to fill the Harry Kane-shaped hole at Tottenham. It doesn't look like he's, he's going to be playing um, for at least a week, I'd say minimum. Um, so, yeah, the pressure on, on Pochettino to get the most out of his kind of small squad um, is huge. Um, so, yeah, with uh, hopefully Lucas Moura should be coming back, I think. Um, it's going to be up to him and Christian Eriksen to, to carry the, the attacking can. But It was interesting in the press conference at Fulham yesterday. I was at Fulham and um, he was asked, Pochettino, well, first of all, when he came into the press conference, there was no hangdog expression around him. It was incredibly positive. It's quite striking how positive he was, given that Ali had, had been injured and we were all basically getting ready to write these doom-laden pieces about it. And he came in, big smile on his face, and, and he said, we got options, you know, and people were kind of Mexican wave of eyebrows. And then somebody <laughs> said to him, what are these options? And then he had a big smile and he said, well, Lucas Moura, he's been training, you know, he's going to be fit for Thursday. Uh, Musa Sissoko is going to be available as well to beef up the midfield. You forget that they've scored so many goals this season. Obviously, Son has been available to shoulder the burden when Kane hasn't been available previously. But Wink's scoring shows that they've got that mentality in that squad. Yeah. And I look at Spurs and think they're so defensively strong as well that you would still back them to be able to come on top against the Chelsea side that, you know, they're like the bacon without the eggs with no striker, you know. And, and the fascinating thing about Chelsea is that Sarri has called out the players, and quite strikingly so. It's quite interesting. He is making fundamental mistakes. He's got one of the best players in his position in the world in Canty. Won't play him in the position where he's excelled. He's trying to shoehorn Jorginho into that position. He's got another outstanding winger that he's trying to play in the centre-forward position. And he's blaming the players for not having the mentality to win. I think the pressure is on Chelsea rather than Spurs going into this game. And I think Spurs might be able to see it out. Mm. He's almost gone a full Mourinho, hasn't he, Sarri, here, by calling out the players in that way. That tends not to end well, doesn't it? No, especially with that group of players at Chelsea where we've seen what can happen when they're not particularly happy with with the manager or what the manager's asking them to do. Hazard looked particularly out of sorts, I thought, against Arsenal. He's an absolutely brilliant player, but I think any any player, and this is what I thought with Mourinho as well at Manchester United, any player who is not happy in themselves, and it sounds really airy-fairy, but they're not going to produce their best on the pitch. And it's not necessarily a conscious decision. It's a subconscious thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was a very, it's a huge risk from Sarri to call out his players publicly. You know, yes, do it in the dressing room, tell them what you think. But to do it publicly was, was very risky and he's really left his neck on the line, I think. Mm. And they're up against Sheffield Wednesday, aren't they? And on Sunday, yeah. On Sunday. And it's a fascinating game because um, Stephen Fletcher's in good form for Wednesday. Scored the winner against Wigan at the weekend. Michael Hector's on loan there. And Michael Hector's been talking about the, the physicality of Fletcher and the fact that uh, he'll give the Chelsea backline a hard time. But also defensively, they're very decent as well. I think they've got clean sheets in their last five games. So they'll go into the game with a lot of confidence. Um, but if Chelsea see this as a gimme, if Chelsea are complacent, maybe they can, maybe... And the thing is, you say, well, it's at Stamford Bridge and 
it's fortress Stamford Bridge was some unexpected teams have managed to get results there mm. um, in the last couple of seasons, so why not Sheffield Wednesday? Mm. Chelsea, let's face it, were abject against Arsenal. What did that game tell us about Arsenal? It told us that, the, you know, Arsenal are not the crisis club that everyone was kind of talking them up as being before that game. You know, if they'd lost that game, yes, there would have been a big gap. But I think people were forgetting that Emery is is just at the beginning of, of the job and it's it's a big job that he's got to do to turn around Wenger's long reign and everything that had been going on in the last few years of Wenger's reign. Um, it's not going to be done in, in months. So it told us that there there is talent there. We know there's talent there. The defence was helped by Koscielny being back and being in such... He, he had a great game. Um, so, yeah, it told us there's, you know, they're not as far away as maybe people were starting to think they are. But mm. there's definitely still a lot of work that needs to be done in tra- terms of transfers. Yeah. With Arsenal, you look at them at the moment and it's a bit like an iceberg, isn't it? You know, you see the f- top four... What's going on underneath the waterline? <laughs> you know, we, we hear about you know, Mislintat. Uh, mm. If he goes, basically the recruitment strategy is mm. blown out of the water. It's a club where Stan Kroenke is really, let's face it, only concentrating on the LA Rams who are in the Super Bowl. This is a club in danger of dying, not dying, but being endangered by... A half-interested employee, uh, uh, owner. It's interesting because you 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 mentioned an iceberg. I see them at the moment like a piece of driftwood. Really, they are just drifting. Great win, I, I, I agree for them at the weekend. But since the end of that unbeaten run, twenty-two matches, I think it was, they've been very hit and miss, and defensively they've been poor all season. I think Czech has retired because he wants to play, but he's not going to get a chance to play and he doesn't want to play for anybody else and go on that ageing circus that football sometimes has where you end up in some place where you can't motivate yourself. He'll end up as a goalkeeping coach, won't he? I think he will. I think he'll remain at the club, but in in that sort of capacity. Uh, It was quite interesting, quite striking that Bob Wilson was expressed incredulity that he decided to quit when he did because he said he's 36 Mm. and he's easily capable of continuing for another few years. But just on that bit about behind the scenes, there are big problems. Miss Lintat, it feels he's being sidelined. He's going to leave. Uh, you've got Aaron Ramsey picking up 100 and, well, basically signed for another club and he's still there. You know, the number of players that have been allowed to run their contracts down and simply just walk away. High-value talent at that club, influential players. Uh, people can say what they want and rewrite history about Ramsey and Sanchez. They These guys are good players and have been good servants for the club. Uh, you've got players in 150 odd grand a week on the bench can't get a game um, and then you, you look at Emery coming out and saying I've got no money to spend now Wenger being the company man he was he would have come out and said he would have defended the club basically and said oh we are doing stuff in the market and given that illusion that they're out there making moves and competing with the bigger clubs in the Premier League Emery won't do it because he knows that, that he carries the can if they don't do well so he's saying this is what I've got to work with for the sixth richest club in the world to be coming out and saying we've got no money, you're right. It does reflect poorly on Stan Kroenke. He should be investing in the team. Otherwise, what's he got the club for? And Arsenal fans are right to be unhappy about the state of affairs that they're in at the moment. I was quite surprised to hear, you know, we all know that Arsenal fans traditionally are quite difficult to please, that they were having a go at Emery. 
that doesn't compute to me. No, I mean, the, the Ozil situation is kind of, you know, a sign of how bad things have been run. And, and that was all done before Emery, Emery arrived. You know, he's having to deal with the fallout of that, which has obviously been a, a real difficult thing for him to handle. And we don't really know how that's going to end at the moment or where that's going to go next. So, yeah, it's, it is crazy that fans want Emery to undo however many years of the club's decline within the space of one season. You know, it's not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I would love to see him on your, on your site and, and get an insight into his thinking about, first of all, an insight into what he inherited mm. at Arsenal. Because I remember when they signed him, and Arsenal fans, some Arsenal fans were saying, this is a second-tier manager, a Europa League manager. Well, you're in the Europa League. <laughs> 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 so he's the best possible manager you could possibly, you know, you, you could have. And, you know, I, I agree. I think there's a lot on his shoulders when it's the club is just in turmoil. And we saw that remarkable story last week about Per Mertesacker going to the NBA. Uh, now, it has to be said... Insta Arsenal, instead of going, instead to, of the, going uh, to the FA Youth, Youth Cup, Cup game yeah. uh, between Arsenal and Tottenham. Now, to be fair to Per, and, and speaking to people at the Cup, he works very, very hard, very, very hard, and they're very defensive of him, and they say it's unfair to malign him, and we shouldn't. Um, Surely someone in the PR department should tap on the show and say this isn't going to play well. Well, that's the, that's that's because Oliver Holt wrote a piece on Sunday, basically talking about the, his shock. Really, and Martin Keown was quite scathing as well. Um, and I think somebody made the point: what if a player had decided they had to miss the game because they wanted to go and watch the NBA? Um, but as I say, players were very very well regarded at the club, uh, and and they're very defensive of him, and they say that it's a long-standing engagement, and he should have been allowed to go and do it. I, I just think. If you put everything together, it presents a problem with the image of the club and the standards, the high standards that them set for themselves falling. Yeah, Sarah, you speak to a lot of coaches and managers. Um, what's the insight they give you about the recruitment process and how fundamental that is to their job? Mm, absolutely. Uh, interestingly, the, the last manager I spoke to was Alex McLeish. And talking to him about his early days in the job um, in Scotland, that was one of the things he picked. He went straight from player to manager at Motherwell really quickly. He didn't have any, didn't work with an academy, you know, didn't do any youth coaching. He went straight into Motherwell. Um, and that was one of the things he said was the most difficult part of, of that transition was the recruitment. Because it's about contacts, it's about knowing who you want, how to get them, um, and yeah, picking the right people is, is it's crucial. And even hearing Emma Hayes, who's the women, Chelsea women's manager, talking about the possibility of her working in the men's game, one of the reasons she says she would have reservations at the moment is the recruitment side of things. Coaching players, no problem. A player is a player, she can coach. But she's not worked in the men's game. She doesn't have the knowledge and the, the depth of knowledge that you need to be able to do the recruitment side of it yet. Mm. So if we look at recruitment, that tends to be an expensive business. Darren, who's going to spend a lot of money in the next couple of weeks? It's a really good question because everyone's striker crazy. Um, <laughs> and so um, it might well be that a lot of money will be spent on one player. Coutinho? Uh, I don't think Coutinho would... I'd be very surprised if he came back mid-season. Firstly, because it would be an admission of defeat for him. And second of all... I think Barcelona would not want to allow him to leave in mid-season. I think, you know, they'll, 
see what, how it looks in, in the summer. But I do think um, in the top six, um, I think Southampton will spend. I think they'll strengthen their defence. I think Fulham will have one last row of the dice because they need to. Otherwise, they're dead. Uh, they've got to get one. Not much of a pulse there two. now, is there? Seven points from safety at the moment. And Ranieri yesterday was talking about we're still alive. And I was thinking, well, you need snookers soon. You know, mm. like, this could be quite tricky. But he's still adamant. And when you've got the money, you've got a chance, I would imagine. Um, at the top of the Premier League, West Ham badly need a striker. Spurs, I think, will hold their nerve because Son Heung-min comes back on February the 1st at the latest when the Asian Cup uh, ends. Um, Arsenal have say they've got no money. If Manchester United by Eddie Militao, the centre-half, very versatile, I think he could play right back and even in midfield, then that would strengthen their defence ahead of, obviously, a difficult Champions League tie against PSG. Um, I don't think Liverpool will spend... I, I think possibly it might end up being either a West Ham or an Everton who need to do something to help uh, Marco Silva because I think he's only got two wins from his last ten. Not Chelsea? Because if you look at Chelsea, they've spent getting on for half a billion pounds in the last three seasons. And, you know, you can look at the players who've just turned up there, had a sniff of the first team and been jettisoned. Yes. You know, Raymond, Bakayoko, Emerson, Zappacosta... Uh, drink water, etc., etc. Their recruitment has been rank. Yeah, yeah. I, I, listen, I would agree with that. And, and the problem there is that they've had a formula that they've worked for a long time that's been successful for them. They've got two Premier League titles under their belt. So when Conti moaned about not being able to get the players he want, they said, well, look, with this has done well enough for us, thank you very much. The problem is, as you point out, when you look at those players that have come to the club that have gone, then you look at the players in the academy mm. who are champing at the bit to get a chance and say, why have you brought him in? He's not better than what we've got. Then you look at Callum Hudson-Odoi, the 18-year-old, who says, look, I can't get a regular game. You've bought somebody who can play in my position. Bayern Munich will assign me. Why should I stay with you when I can go and do what Jaden Sancho's doing or Reese Nelson's doing at Hoffenheim? Um, or Brahim Diaz is about to do at Real Madrid. So they've got a real problem with that recruitment. First, for the manager in the first team. Second, for the younger players at the club. And third, because I think the more players they buy that don't do it, the more pressure there is on them to maybe change the way they're doing and maybe give a bit more power to the man who's in charge. And Higuain might be the first sign that they're doing that because they didn't want to do that deal because he's 31 years of age now. Listen, as someone who's a little bit older than that, 31's <laughs> not too bad. Um, but I think there is a view that when he, maybe he's passed it and it's throwing good money after bad, but if they don't finish in the top four, then that's going to have financial implications for them anyway. So, yeah, that, listen, there is pressure on them to get it right, and maybe Higuain is the first sign that they're giving in and they're saying, OK, we'll get the players in that you want. Because mm, it's such a familiar theme, isn't it, Sarah, that there is this instinct not to trust young, homegrown talent. What will change that? Will that be economic circumstance or will it be someone having moral courage to say, right, I'm going to hang my hat on these kids? I'd like to say the latter, but I suspect the former is more likely um, if it starts to have financial implications. You know, if Chelsea see that they've spent all this money and yet they had this talent sitting there in their academy that Bayern Munich are willing to pay good money for, mm. 
um, that they, you know, they could have saved themselves a, a 60 million outlay just by giving the, the kid, you know, a chance. I think that's probably more likely to start to change their mindset. Um, but it's about perception, isn't it? Like, it's about seeing just because a guy's come up through your academy, just not appreciating the talent until someone else says, actually, yeah. we appreciate that talent. And then suddenly they go, oh, maybe he's quite good. But she shouldn't be like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've produ- your club has produced him and put time and effort into that. Because and... in a sense, that faith has been the key to Manchester United's revival under uh, Oligo Sanchez, where seven wins, you look at Rashford, a completely different player to the one six weeks ago. Absolutely. Um, not only is have they had uh, seven wins, but Rashford scored in five of them. Uh, and he's playing in the centre-forward position and he's being imbued with the confidence that a striker needs to be able to go about his business and not feel that if he makes a mistake... You remember that footage of Mourinho turning away in disgust when Rashford missed a chance? Mm. I think Solskjaer, being a striker himself, former striker himself, he knows how to make Rashford feel 10 feet tall. And I think for Southgate in particular, that's going to be a great potential solution if Kane isn't back because he's got somebody who's oven ready, you know, and he's going to be able to not just step into the breach, but step into the breach with confidence. And with just in in general terms, that whole faith in the kids type thing, just to go back to Spurs, Oliver Skip has come into the reckoning of the midfielder who's got such a big future. Harry Winks obviously scored yesterday. And now when Pochettino played him against uh, Real Madrid in the Champions League, people, what are you doing? That's a suicide note, not a team sheet. And yet he performed so well. Um, and the pathway is opening at some clubs. Um, I think at Manchester United, it's always been open. I think they've got that long record, haven't mm. they? Of always having an academy. Until about 1937 there. or something. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I think um, under Solskjaer, that's only going to continue this season. Do we underestimate coaches, Sarah, when they come from, say, Scandinavia? You know, Oli'd been working in Norway. Mm. Uh, you've done quite a lot of work with Graham Potter, who basically came up via... Uh, Sweden, what's the standard like? And are there almost hidden managers and coaches out there? In Scandinavia particularly? Yeah. yeah. There is competitive out there. Um, I think with Graham Potter particularly, it was the only place where he was going to get an opportunity. You know, Östersunds, when he went there, were in the fourth tier of Swedish football where the level, he'll admit himself, wasn't wasn't great. Um, And he had to do a lot of work in terms of recruitment which was hard for them because it was hard to get players to go there in the first place mm-hmm. and building them up. So, yeah, I think we probably do. There probably is a tendency to underestimate them. There's actually another uh, English manager at Ustersons now uh, called Ian Birchnell, who also doesn't have a playing background, much of a playing background at all. And he's following a similar pathway to Graham Potter and he's doing very well at Ustersons. Mm. But if you ask me whether he'd be able to get a job here now, I would say not yet. You know when you talk about recruitment... Do players like to go? Because I know Charlie Colkett, for example, at Chelsea is considering an offer from Ostersons to go out there. Um, and other, some players see the big leagues, like the Bundesliga and the Spanish League and, and the French League as well. But do you find players are seeing Sweden as an option as well? I think so. I think it's, a, it's not a huge change in terms of culture, especially when it comes to the football. I think it was Ian Birchnell who said to me he would probably compare it to uh, League One, Ish sort of standard, so yeah, I, I think it's not maybe not as huge a leap for them yeah. to go and play out there, especially when there's 
there's a few English managers out there um, which will make the transition even easier. Mm. Let's look at the club. Now, you know, you look at Newcastle, you know, that ongoing soap opera, you know, starring um, Mike Ashley. <laughs> um, they've got Watford at home in the Cup. Is there a chance that the FA Cup could be a, a great rallying point for them? For Newcastle? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. You talk about community, and, and there's a great sense of community at Newcastle. Um, there's a community, and there's Mike Ashley outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, they're all united in, in, in their sort of condemnation of his running of the club. So it could unite them. The problem is that they've got to stay in the Premier League. And there's a reality about that, Rafa, before um, the third round tie was very open about the fact that staying in the league means this to us. Staying in the winning the FA Cup, well, only a small band of clubs have won the FA Cup. Mm. Um, and so our priority has to be the Premier League. And a lot of people weren't happy about that. But the interesting thing was the appetite that the side went out to perform in the third round tie, which suggested that the players aren't worried about politics. The players want to go out there and do the job. And so it could well be that they do go out there. Sometimes it's, you know, unlikely cup runs. We've seen so many before. It could well be the case that they could put a run of games together and maybe surprise a few people. One thing is never in doubt, Rafa knows how to set a side up to get a result. You know, it might not necessarily be pretty, but he knows how to get the job done. And um, against a Watford side, we've got nothing else to play for. It'll be tough. You know, there's a great stat about Javi Garcia. Have you had him on your... Not yet, not yet. He celebrates a year in the job today. Yeah. I think he's only the fourth manager to do that since <laughs> Gianfranco <laughs> Sola five years ago, six years ago, whatever. It's some ridiculous stat. But they, they've got such a high turnover of managers there. Uh, but Javi Garcia has done a good job. They're playing for him. Uh, they had a goalless draw at the weekend. But, you know, they're, they're well organised and I think they'll be tough for Newcastle to play against. If we're looking for shocks, Sarah, what about Millwall at home to Everton? Um, Millwall have been interesting this season, haven't they? Um, Neil Harris had a you know a brilliant season last year with the playoff run. This year has looked really difficult for them. But they have, I think, the last sort of six or seven games, they've stabilised and they're, they're on a good run. So potentially, and like we said, Everton... Everton do have issues. Richarlison has looked out of sorts. He's, he seems to be lacking confidence at the moment. Um, he was the same last year at Watford, wasn't he? Second half of the season, yeah. They packed it off. up about October time. Oh, maybe that's Marco Silva as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually, on, on Marco Silva, man, myth or magic? <laughs> you could patent that game, couldn't yeah. you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I like him as a manager, but I think he's got a lot still to prove. I think the second half of the season will be interesting. Ask me that again in May and we'll see. But yeah, potentially, definitely, you know, going to Millwall is, is not going to be easy, especially with them coming back into some form. Yeah. Um, he's been around for two years in the Premier League, Darren. I'm still not sure about him, to be honest. No, I, I'm not sure either. I think um, it... it... He, had a, he has great starts to the season and maybe he now has to work on being able to smash this idea that in the second half of, his te of the season his teams drop off. But certainly that's the case with a very talented squad that he's got at Everton. I think it's two wins from the last 10 now. Uh, they were easy to beat at the weekend, far too easy for a Southampton side that his confidence is still a little bit fragile. What I would like to see is the club stick with him. 
you know, you don't bring a manager, a young manager in now like that, and then basically throw them overboard because it's not going your way. If they're going to succeed and turn things around, then they've got to lay the foundations for him to succeed. And maybe he needs a couple more transfer windows for us to start seeing his team. But defensively, they're not good enough. In midfield, they're a little bit light as well. They've got a lot of players from previous regimes that are not part of his plans that they've got to get rid of. You talk about recruitment. There is work to do on the recruitment side before you can start to judge him. Uh, it's got to be his team that you judge rather than the mistakes of other people. Mm. What do you make of West Ham, Sarah? You know, they're at ASC Wimbledon in what looks like a classic banana skin game. Yeah, West Ham have been so inconsistent just when I think they are... Pellegrini's found a, a system and, and the, the right players to work in that system and they get you know, a good win like they did against Arsenal, then, then the next game they're, they're, they're terrible. Um, the situation with Arnautovic, I don't know. That seems to be changing all the time. I don't know what the latest is, whether he's going to go or not. Tune in next week. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it is a banana skin for a team that, that can't seem to find a real consistent run of form this season. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing about West Ham is that they've been destabilised by this whole Arnautovic thing. Um, that was predictable, though, wasn't it? You know, if you look at his background, if there's another, if, you know, there's another check on the horizon, he'll usually run towards it, won't he? I think that's a problem for football in general. You know, I mean, I remember Robinho turning up at Manchester City because the offer was too good for him to turn down. And that's not a slur on Manchester City. I mean, the City have got the right to be ambitious into going for the best players that think that will improve them. But I think um, with the Chinese Super League, they often produce huge paychecks for players in their mid-20s to go. So Ramirez and Carrasco and, and, and so many other, Alex Teixeira, you know, players very capable who could have done a, a great jobs here in the Premier League. And, they've, they've, well, Ramirez did. And they all go off to the Super League. And I think um, the problem for Anatovic is he's their most potent weapon up front, but his head's all over the place. And there's a big difference at the weekend between him playing for, well, not playing for West Ham, and Callum Wilson, who Gianfranco Zola came out a couple of weeks ago. We like him as a player. That could be in his head. But Wilson goes out, scores a wonderful goal for Bournemouth, and sets them on the way. And I think, as far as Anatovic is concerned, personally, I'd let him go because I think. His head is already all over the place. And unless he can refocus, he's no good to West Ham. So I think they should let him go and maybe mm. get someone else who's committed to what they're trying to do. Mm. I, you know, I do, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I do like, love watching you know, the lower league teams against higher opposition. You know, you look at the last round, Newport mm. beating Leicester, um, exposing maybe some of Leicester's frailties, but also you've got a manager there in Mike Flynn who's come up through that system in straightened circumstances. Now they're away to Middlesbrough, who, although they're around about the playoff mark, are pretty much stinking the place out in, in the championship. Um, that's what the FA Cup's all about to me, yeah. matches like that. I mean, I don't think anyone will forget this, the scenes after the final whistle at Leicester when, when he was on the pitch holding his, you know, with his little boy. Um, and the fans, obviously, you know, there's a real connection there with the manager, like we were talking about mm. earlier. The, the sense of community around that club must be, you know, to be a part of that must be brilliant as a fan um, and as a player. So, yeah, for them to be in the spotlight again, you know, they were, was it last season against Spurs? Mm. Um, there's obviously something special there and that they can win these big games and, 
yeah, against Middlesbrough, they've definitely you'd have to think they've definitely got a, a good opportunity there. I think they've got a great chance, mate, because Middlesbrough, the fans turned on them after Millwall scored at the weekend and were really getting stuck in. A couple of players came out after the game and said they couldn't believe the fans, given where they are in the playoffs. But I think Tony Pulis is trying to bludgeon his way to promotion, which, fair enough, you, you know, by any means necessary if, it, if mm. they get the job done. Because that's his sole focus, I give Newport a chance. They play good stuff, as you say. They won't be overawed by coming up against Middlesbrough. Um, certainly, if they're not overawed by playing against the higher Premier League sides. And I just wonder, if they were to get the early goal, whether the pressure would be on the Borough players and whether the Borough players would see that as something that they want to put their heart and souls into or whether the Premier League is their sole focus and they don't want to be derailed by the FA Cup. I think Newport got a chance. Okay. A couple of questions from the, uh, the viewers and listeners to end with. Jeremy Bowling reminds us of Lincoln City two years ago. 15 cup ties to reach the sixth round, having started in the fourth qualifying round. They also got to the semi-final of the FA Trophy, got 99 points to win the National League at the time. He makes the point, weakened teams from massively resourced clubs. Is that a poor excuse? <laughs> it's about... Yeah, it's about resources, you know. The bigger clubs have those those resources. They can make those substitutions and play, you know, younger players because they've got the depth there that a Lincoln City probably doesn't have, um, you know. And speaking to Danny Cowley about that season, I remember him saying that come April, his players were dead on their feet. <laughs> you know, they were, they'd played so many games. And it's, it's not surprising sometimes when we see Premier League teams fielding, we call them weakened teams, but... It's about context, isn't it? And mm. In that context, the one from Michael Murphy, Darren. Is there an irony that despite the narrative that managers need to win trophies, the last three managers to win the FA Cup lost their jobs shortly afterwards? For a big six manager, is the league place more important than winning the FA Cup? Yes, in a word. I, think, I remember um, Kenny Dalglish won the League Cup and got to the final of the FA Cup. But I think in that season, if I'm not mistaken, they finished eighth at Liverpool and he lost his job. So Kenny Dalglish, the, the legend of football. Um, and the reality is that for the biggest clubs, the Premier League is where it's at. The top four, the championship, uh, league position is all that matters. For the clubs outside it, not so much. Um, but certainly for the biggest clubs, I, I don't know, I mean, clearly you speak directly to the managers. Well, even if you just look at Arsenal, you know, it was um, all the talk was, oh, they've not won anything and then won the FA Cup a few times, but finished outside the top four and that, that was a disaster. Yeah, absolutely. So mm. I think that kind of says it all. OK, final question for both of you uh, from John Sands. Who is your top tip to win the FA Cup outside the usual top six? And do we need a surprise winner this season? I think we could do have a surprise winner this season. Um, just to kind of give hope to the teams outside the usual cabal that it can be done. Name names. <laughs> um, I'd like to see Watford win it. I'd like to see Watford win it. That 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 would be a nice, nice, well-run club. I'd love to say a club outside of Premier League, but I think that might be a bridge too far. But I'd like to see a Watford maybe win it. Okay. Well. Oh, I, <laughs> it is difficult. Um, I mean, what a story it would be if Newcastle won it. Yeah. Um, yeah. For the fans, I think that would be it would be a great story. I'm not saying it's it's going to happen or it's, it's even likely, but um, 
for Rafa Benitez to get something out of the job that yeah. is not pressure yeah, and job. stress um, would be quite nice. Um, yeah. That would be, yeah, be a great story. You, Mike? Well, I'm going to go with Sarah. I actually, before the third round, looked at Newcastle as potential dark horses. Now, I know it's fashionable to give the cup a kick in, but as the sainted Joni Mitchell once sang, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.